and down the coast of California, from San Diego to Sacramento, from the Bay to the border, these are the young voices of the Golden State. This podcast tells their stories, the stories of men and women who are fighting for a voice in their communities and all over the country, who are working together in solidarity to rise up as one. From Fusion Media Group, this is The Brave. Yemi Lopez is an undocumented immigrant. She moved to the U.S. from Mexico when she was seven. I uh, was born in Texcoco, Mexico, and uh, my background in work at first comes from uh, learning how to tell my story, you know, when I, as an undocumented young woman who grew up in California. That very much became central to my work. Um, and then learning how to be a worker, I think, was the next thing. Working in restaurants, working um, at doctor's office, uh, working as a union organizer for five years, uh, helping organize janitors and security officers. To now, um, I'm a farmer right now. Um, I work 10-hour days, and I love the work that I do right now. It's an organic farm. And uh, praying with the indigenous people of the Sacramento area looking to make my work uh, the long-term path of intertwining the social justice life that I want to live and being able to pay my bills on a daily basis. Now these days she works as a farmer and as a community organizer in Sacramento with the Answer Coalition. Our Rise Up Be Heard reporter Nikki Chan met with her the day of a rally for Stefan Clark organized by the Answer Coalition. Say his name! Stephon Clark! Say his name! Stephon Clark! Say his name! Clark! She talked about working with different groups within her community in Sacramento. So I know you brought up that, you know, you're an, a farmer. So not a, lo- not a lot of women are farmers. So how did you get involved in that? And how do you see, you know, in my circles, we talk about decolonizing your food, talking about taking it away from the colonizers. So how can you see that as a way, you know, as produce, as healing? I think the, a good story is my mom right now. She's 50 years old and she's been a farmer for, um, for a long time. So I think the idea is that not many younger people who went to go get a four-year, five-year degree are farmers, you know, because we have all my family saying, what you go to school for if now you're in the campo, you know? But the truth is that our women have been in the campos for a very, very long time. When I got to work with my mom and I saw her discipline, I was like, why isn't your labor paid at a different level, you know, being an organizer and actually, like, just being the administrator of organizing contracts for workers like that? and being paid a salary that took care of me well, you know, but the workers were still, who like actually physically used their body, were not being compensated at that level because their labor, you know, it's not, it's used, you know, it's used to make profit for a very few. So um, I think there's different degrees of of decolonizing that happens. So I know you also said that you're also involved in work with the Miwok tribe. How did you get started in that? I would uh, say Maria Rico uh, was a classmate at Sacramento State, um, and she prayed with the Miwok tribe, and she also did Aztec dancing. So at that point, I, as a fifth year in college, I grew up Catholic, and I go into the Catholic church to say, okay, let's, man, sitting there and hearing some of the, uh, like, uh, uh, sexist things the priest was saying, 
you know, and how they talked about the family, I was like, it just does not align with my beliefs. And, you know, there was already like that calling for me to search something that kind of aligned my beliefs and my my understandings of how the world worked, you know, and the history of, you know, the indigenous people and how women are central to the faith. All those beliefs that now I carried needed to fit my spirituality. But it's such heavy work that you got to go somewhere to make sure that you can keep taking care of the work for the long run of it, you know? So when we're, like, tonight, you know, that we are hearing protesters right outside the office right now, you know, the specific demand is that the cops that killed Zoe be prosecuted, right? We saw what happened, you know, there's no reason why these cops can't be prosecuted. And that's the specific demand that's being asked by, by people, you know? Um, what also happens at the lodge is that people who wouldn't traditionally connect at a deep level, you know, of vulnerability and understanding what this system, even around, um, that be around housing, that be around healthcare, it all goes back to like the economic oppression that communities are going through all the time, you know, like the, the sickness that has been left there by the economic oppressions. So just trying to bridge, I think, those gaps. In, in different ways of building circles. That'd be the sweat lodge, that'd be outside protesting, or like, like what we're doing right now. We just continue to organize with rallies and marches. So, you know, I think we, the masses, the numbers is what we're working on. I think we've seen glimpses of where we're at by actions that we're having right now for Zoe. Yesterday, I was at work, but what I hear from my comrades, it was like a reunion of the work that's been done for the five, past five, six years of active works here. You could see the people from different circles showing up for this one cause yesterday, you know? And the level and degree of police brutality, you know, police hitting people with their batons, pepper spraying, two people got pepper sprayed, is also an escalation than what we've seen in six years. And we don't do those things just because they're fun but because uh, the struggle that our community has right now needs that kind of healing. So um, it just flows through me, you know? I didn't get to choose it, um, but we just bring that healing wherever it's needed, and, and we trust that we're at the right place at the right time for the work that we need to do. So as you may know, the podcast we're working on is about solidarity and intersectionality. Um, it's easy to say that, you know, a lot of people say we have to be intersectional, we have to be inclusive, but do you think it's really difficult to achieve? Um, intersectionality is um, knowing that your struggle, you know, if you are undocumented, you know, if you are black, you know, and being shot down, if you're from the LGBT community and being and facing bullying, um, as a woman, you know, in spaces that are sexist, you know, or that are violent. I think whatever struggle that I, you're in, I think you have to believe that you can't possibly win that fight without the rest of those circles. I think it's a feeling. I think it really is a feeling that then translates into an action. Because the more and more that we come together in these circles, I think we're, as persons, we're intersectional already. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a decolonization thing that happens about the way we think. Uh, automatically, intersectional is present at all given times. But I think currently we've found the language to talk about it. So 
the fact that we're housing, you know, the, uh, hosting tonight from this office. And this is the same office that hosts, ho helps host immigration rallies, you know, the same office that helps host LGBT rights, you know, protests and uh, just whatever the, it's called, whatever is called for, you know, that work is get, gets housed under the same space. So that's what I mean, that when you come together and you have a group of people that you're constantly doing this work with, they're gonna, we're gonna show up, you know, that's what comrades do. If the person you are right now can give some advice or tips about organizing social justice to the younger person you were, what would, what would they be? A younger me. That's so hard because of the belief that I feel like what I had to live then could only be lived then so that I could know what I know now. Um, I think just trust, you know, trust the process of life. I think I got that message maybe like my third year in college. You know, just trust the process, the rhythm and flow of life because it will show you. I think that if that would have been a more grounding understanding that um, I would have had, even before I knew what it was to be an activist, even as just like um, a young woman, you know, who got separated i got separated from my mom at a young age which i think where's a lot of the empathy and emotion that i could feel just physically comes from so i think that that, that young woman i think day by day mm -hmm, write it out because i think that was what what uh, carried me through you know i have journals since i was 10 of writing it out so i can go back and see faces <laughs> just the process of life and write it out We're back in the studio uh, with me, Felonius Monk. Again, this story, yeah, I hate this thing. You know, this is a sad story. The, all of these stories are sad. And what's what's just unbelievable to me, and it's been unbelievable in every single case, is the abject fear that people have of black men, armed or unarmed. But very specifically here, we've seen with Philando Castile, the names change, but the story seems to be the same every time. I feared for my life. I feared for my life. I feared for my life. And I'm not concerned about the training. I'm concerned about the conditioning that allows you to be in a situation where a man pulls a phone out and a phone at any time of the day looks like a gun, looks like a crowbar. Look, I have an iPhone 7 Plus, and I'm not plugging th that particular company. I'm just telling you it's a pretty big phone, and it's not the size of a crowbar. Anyone who mistakes a phone for a crowbar has never changed a tire. I'm usually, I usually have a lot of words. It's just this particular story, uh, like every single one of them, reminds me that some things can't be contextualized. So uh, for all of the people who are out there standing up for the lives of people lost to police violence, thank you for being the voice for the voiceless. And maybe one day we won't need those voices. Um, special thanks to our Rise Up reporter, Nikki Chan, for her work on this story. The Brave Podcast is a project of Fusion Media Group in partnership with the California Endowment. The Rise Up Be Heard program manager is Jacob Seamus. The show is produced by Raghu Manavalan. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. And... Fusion's executive director of audio is Mandana Mofidi. Special thanks to Fusion's Stephen Keppel and Marcelo Rodriguez of the California Endowment and to Audio Link LA Studios in Los Angeles, California. You can find out more about the incredible men and women featured on this podcast in the show notes of this episode. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next up on the podcast... 
My grandparents were part of the United Farm Workers Movement. My parents were part of the Chicano Movement. Um, my parents were um, part of the the like cultural art scene, the Chicano art scene here in the Central Valley when I was growing up. And um, they would throw me in the van, and they they would like with their theater group, and they would travel different parts of the state and perform around body of warfare. Um, and and so I got to experience that. And uh, I always saw the power of of art and activism in moving people. Like I feel it's the the, the that one thing that really moves people emotionally, um, surpassing other other forms of, of of like passing knowledge or or information. Don't miss it. Seriously, subscribe so you won't miss it. Okay. And I'm Felonious Monk. I'll see you next time. We are back. In the studio with the king of Shea Butter Twitter, Felonious Monk. 